Today we continue in this uh, series of Perfect Ten, and we're looking at the fifth commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, as we come into this place, your word tells us where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. And certainly there are more than two or three of us here. We thank you that you are here. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We live in uh, perilous times. We're living in times which are, you know, um, difficult on many levels. I came across uh, social media, a little video clip which I'm going to show you. And a title, So You Want to Be a Shepherd? <laughs> Knock Down the Shepherd. <laughs> Sometimes, as a shepherd, I feel like that. Um, you know, the decision, do we meet this weekend or not, was uh, before us. Uh, I know there are a number of churches that have decided to call off their uh, public services, the uh, most prominent City Harvest and then Adam Road Presbyterian as well as uh, the entire Roman Catholic Archdiocese have called off their public services. And we, we had to weigh it all and ultimately I'm sort of glad we are in a diocese because the decision was made above us. So it's our over-shepherds who are taking a lot of the beating because, you know, it's all, they criticize you whether you do, they criticize you whether you don't. So in a sense, sometimes you, you're not sure which way to turn. And I was particularly uh, struck that we really need to be praying for pastors. I'm not just asking for myself, but, you know, uh, I, I've been reading about uh, Grace Assembly of God, and they're now the largest cluster, and I can imagine, you know, what they're going through by God's grace, I understand, you know, that they are remaining strong and they're continuing to plow on. But, you know, the senior pastor himself is in NCID. And who knows whether he was one of the super spreaders or not. I mean, we don't know. But certainly, there's all this uh, cross-movement. And we'll talk about some of the measures we're going to be taking in our church because we do have two services and we'll talk about some um, things we want to do. But why do we meet? I think there's a principle here. And, and this is not the sermon yet, I just a little bit to address the situation, what we're facing. You know, I think there are two things we need to be wary of. Number one, we need to be careful, that's for certain. But we don't want to be fearful. Be careful, not fearful. And I think, you know, how do we be careful and not fearful? One of the most important things for us is let's uh, operate and make decisions on the basis of good information. You know, there's a lot of information out there. I don't know if it's really been a blessing, this information age. Because of the nature of the internet and how it's so available now, even on our handphones, we can easily access information. You know, much information is not necessarily good because we don't know how to evaluate the source sometimes. So look to reliable sources of information. And that's part of the reason we are continuing to meet, you know, yes, social distancing, I've always felt that like, since I've come here to pastor this church, got social distancing, you all like to sit right at the back. So I always feel a social distance. <laughs> but 
nonetheless, you know, uh, we uh, will be passing the peace later, but we are not shaking hands because the, uh, uh, the word coming back from the experts is that it's oftentimes through uh, close contact that the possibility of infection takes place. And actually, similar to flu and uh, the cold, the common cold, that's how it happens. So, you know, we, we, we make the, the decision on the basis of information, but often fear comes when we let our imagination run wild. We think about the worst-case scenario, and then we blow it up. And then, you know, we, we live in fear, and we need to uh, find a balance between the two. But, like I said, we are continuing this series in the Ten Commandments. We've entitled it Perfect Ten, because they're God's ten words for us. Uh, the words to his uh, people who were newly formed as the nation of Israel. They were the, uh, he was in the process of creating a new people, and as his word creates life, that's what he was doing. Teaching them new ways of living, new ways of doing things, forming them into a new people, taking them out of a culture that they had known all their lives, and forming a new culture. And I think it's important for us in this year of discipleship that we continue to be formed in the understanding and the ways of God. And as you know, the Ten Commandments, later God wrote them down on two tablets of stone. These are not the real tablets. <laughs> it's representative. It's in written in Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew reads from uh, right to left, sort of like uh, the Chinese language. And uh, the right is the first tablet. The left is the second. And scholars sometimes debate, you know, where does the fifth commandment lie? Does it lie in the first tablet or the second? The first tablet really helps us understand how we relate to God. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then loving the community, the people whom God has placed you in proximity with. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the second tablet. And, um, you know, in many ways, this commandment, the fifth commandment, builds a bridge between the two. But I think and uh, I believe, as with many other scholars, it falls under the first commandment. And let me explain to you why. Why should we see and obey this uh, uh, commandment, the fifth commandment, about honoring our parents? You know, our parents are really our first encounter with authority, aren't they? They are the authority figures over us when we are born into a family. They are the relationship in which we learn to obey, learn to submit, learn to relate to authority, hopefully in healthy ways. In many ways, I believe obedience begins at home. And it's important, our home life. But you see, under God, the principle is this. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells uh, the Roman church, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That this is a, a principle, you know, which um, uh, is, is true even under trying circumstances. Don't forget, the Roman authorities were by no means godly authorities. In fact, you know that Paul eventually became a martyr and he died because uh, the Romans started to persecute. The, the Nero, uh, the Roman emperor, persecuted Christians. And many, many Christians lost their lives. 
And yet there is a principle in which all authority, in a sense, has been established by God. And so consequently, he goes on in this passage, he says, He who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is the overarching principle. And this is why I say, you know, this commandment sort of bridges the gap between our relationship with God and the relationship with one another. In obeying, in honoring our parents, ultimately, what we are learning to do is to honor and to submit to God. And, you know, so this is about us understanding our relationship with God. And you see, also in the uh, book of Ephesians, a letter to the Ephesians, Paul said to them, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In the Greek, it's probably better translated, from whom all fatherhood derives its name. Not just family, but all parenthood, in that sense, is uh, uh, derived from the image and who God is. But therein lies a problem. And I know this because having been a pastor for many years, I've had a chance to talk with people, sometimes counsel them, and, and work th- with them through issues. There are people who have a real problem with God. And oftentimes, the problem they have stems from the fact that they've had a problem with their own uh, relationship with their parents, usually the father, but not only the father. You know, uh, a problem with authority overall because of uh, something that had happened in the past, in their own upbringing or in their life. And it, it goes often like this, you know, because I had a bad father or mother, they begin to project the feelings that they have in relating to their parents, who were their first authority, and they project that onto God. In a sense, they project that image of poor parenthood onto God. And they struggle with this uh, uh, identity, self-identity in Scripture, calling God Father. But understand this, you see, it's not God who's being made in the image of our human likeness or human parenthood, we are made in the image of God. That's why I had the reading from Genesis to see creation's design, right? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We know this. God is not male nor female, although he self-identifies and he used that terminology and there are all kinds of reasons for that and I believe That is true. But God's best expressed in the relationship of father and mother. That together we give a picture, we are made in the image of God. But of course we know the reality is that, you know, uh, although we are made in the image and God's intention, you see in verses uh, uh, 28, uh, and following is, is that you know, we then continue the work of God. We have dominion. We have uh, uh, authority. We, have, um, we are meant to be uh, uh, stewards of all creation. And that's a whole other sermon uh, for another time. 
But the reality is this, that we were made in God's image. However, the image of God in us has fallen. Because sin has entered into the world, this image is marred. And because it's marred, it's very easy sometimes for us when we look at a, a, a broken, dirty, distorted image and then begin to project that on the real thing. But it doesn't make much sense, does it? I don't know if one day you went out and uh, you encountered a, a, a merchant. Maybe now you're not doing that so much <laughs> because you're worried about catching an infection. But if you were, and suddenly they handed you a counterfeit $50 bill, and because you don't know, you can't tell the real from the false, when you go to the bank to bank it in, the banker, uh, bank teller tells you, sorry, sir, this is a counterfeit bill. You cannot deposit it. Do you, on the basis of the fact that you're disappointed by a counterfeit, say, I don't want to have anything to do with money altogether? Right? You don't let the poor image distort the image of what was originally intended. Some years ago, there was a viral news story that went about uh, this church where it uh, had a beautiful mural, Eke Homo, uh, where it's, it's you know, Jesus the man, this, uh, you know, um, from, from, from the trial before Pilate. And Jesus, the painting, the f- mural, the fresco was um, uh, coming apart, you know, because it's been weathered. And an 80-year-old woman, a long-time member of the church, decided she needed to do something about it. You see there on the right is her attempt to um, repair or restore the fresco. And of course, it went viral because, you know, it's a distorted image of what the artist originally intended. We don't judge the value of the artwork based on a distortion of it. You know, we recognize that there is an original intent and design. And in a sense, that's what we need to see. That as parents... You know, the true image of true parenthood is found in God Himself. And you know, that's a word for us because I know and I recognize that many of us have not had the best upbringing. You know, many of us sometimes struggle and there's a temptation to project onto God the image uh, we have of our own parents, whether your parent happened to be, for example, a very distant one. You know, emotionally distant. Never hugged you, never uh, um, demonstrated physical love or even, you know, uh, uh, spoke to you in, in words of, uh, uh, terms of endearment. And, you know, the temptation then is to struggle. How do I see God as a loving God? Or if you have a parent who's, you know... Slightly perfectionistic, quite similar to most Asian parents, you know, where you think the best way to motivate your children is to push them hard. So when you come home with your 95 in your maths test, your father says to you, where's the other 5%? How did you miss the 5%? You know, they say, well done, you know, wonderful, you got an A. Uh, you, you get um, a, a, like a, a parent that's hard to please and you begin to project that onto God and say God is a hard to please parent. Or a God is an absent parent. Or God is a parent who doesn't know his limits and, you know, uh, uh, jokes with you and won't stop even when you ask him to stop. And I could go on and on and on. But you see, the danger in doing that 
is that we uh, have a distorted image of who God is. But the converse can be true if we understand that, you know, God is the perfect Father. Then for those of us who have struggled with our relationship with our Father, and because our Father maybe was abusive or was non-present, or even if He was there, was non-demonstrative, we can look to God, the perfect Father, to give us what we have been missing all along, that which we had been longing for in our hearts. You know, some of the, it, the, the reason we long for it is because we know there must be someone out there who is perfect, and that He is, and that is God Himself. So that's the why of why we need to obey this command. But how do we go about doing it? That's the question, isn't it? Ephesians 6 verses 1 to 4 is, I think, uh, a, a, a good place to start because Paul is dealing with family relationships. And really, this commandment has to do with familial relationships. Not just between parents, uh, children and parents, but it's also parents and children and on through uh, the family in, in many ways. You heard that joke, which I think it's been told many times, right? Sunday school, the teacher was teaching on this fifth commandment and said, you know, this is a commandment that teaches us our relationship with parents. Do any of you know the commandment which teaches us our relationship with our siblings, our brothers and our sisters? And for a moment, there was no response until a little boy in the back shot up his hand and he said, yes, thou shalt not murder. Some of you know exactly what uh, that means. But here... Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And so Paul, commenting on this passage, uh, um, interprets the word honor as obey. And I think, again, because, you know, when we honor, is we hold someone in high esteem, we deem them as important, I think obedience becomes a natural part of how we relate to those who are first in authority over us. But I want to say some things about that. Because, you know, it says this, children, obey your parents, what? In the Lord. Because our understanding of authority, God-given authority, is that all authority derives from God. So therefore, the, 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 the prime authority, the ultimate authority, the, the authority above all authority, is God Himself. So when we obey our parents, it's yes, but there's a but. <laughs> because, you know, you obey them as unto the Lord, so long as it's an obedience to God's law and God's precepts and God's uh, leading and directing, yes, we obey. What does that mean? You know that in World War II, there were a lot of uh, soldiers who were, after the war, prosecuted for war crimes. And a lot of times, the defense that came up was this. Well, my superior uh, uh, officer, my commanding officer, told me to do it. And that was never accepted as a defense. 
because there is a law that supersedes your commanding officer or the immediate superior above you, right? The law of, 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 of uh, what is right and good and moral and just. And, you know, just because you say I'm just obeying, you still have a, a, a moral authority to seek the prime authority, which is the authority of God. And that, you know, on down the line, that's the principle we have with all authority that we deal with. Yes, we obey, but God is the supreme authority. We obey as unto the Lord. And if there's ever a conflict, you know who is the ultimate authority that we submit to. All right? And that's the principle that's there. But you know, this morning, I, I, always with the morning service, we have children, and I always tell uh, a children's sermon. I brought this home to them because, you know, in verse 3 it says that if you obey this command, it's got a promise attached to it, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. And this applies more to children than maybe to those of us who are adults uh, uh, relating to our parents. But I think the principle holds. I say to them, why will our life be long? Well, because our parents say to us, don't run across the road. <laughs> and you choose to disobey, your life will not be very long. Parents say to us, don't climb up on the balcony. And we choose to ignore those instructions. We ignore it at the peril of our life. You know, or it could go on and on and on. And, and may not be immediate, but there are consequences to a lot of the instructions. Again, this is a general principle. And, you know, by and large, parents, that's our role. And that's what we want to do is we want to make sure our children are safe but also point them on the right path for life. And there is a principle in which when we submit ourselves to authority, it's not to hurt us, not to, you know, curtail our freedoms, but really to help us flourish. And that's the principle of, of, of submitting to authority. Again, it's a general principle, and I know there are always exceptions, but the exceptions to me point to the rule, rather than, you know, tell us that the rule isn't true. But, you know, like I said, this has to do with family relationships. So it's not just one way. Because Paul goes on then in verse 4 of this passage that we read to say this. Fathers, and I believe he means mothers as well, but maybe fathers are more guilty of this. Do not exasperate your children. Or in another version, do not provoke your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so we, as parents, have a responsibility in how we relate to our children. It's not meant to be because I say so becomes the final word. I know I'm a parent and I say it all the time. The child asks me, why dad? And I say, because I say so. Or a variation of that, as long as you live under my roof, you will obey my law. Right? And uh, I've caught myself saying things like that, but, you know, what does it really mean to exasperate your children? Well, sometimes it's that. And you know what it is? It's when our uh, instructions and our discipline and our training is inconsistent. One day can, the next day cannot. They do not know what the rules are, where the boundaries lie. Or where we have placed boundaries and we don't recognize the fact that our children 
are growing up. And that the level of their responsibility changes. And, you know, there is a principle in which you make the boundaries small when they're young because they can't make decisions. But the point of it in training and instructing our children is to teach them to make good decisions. So you have to allow them, you know, more and more latitude in the decisions that they make because I know sometimes as parents, the tendency is we don't want them to make wrong decisions. But guess what? If you want them to make good decisions, sometimes they have to learn the consequence of making a bad decision. Right? Because making a bad decision often teaches you far more than making a good decision. Yeah? Failure often teaches you how to succeed. Because you know, I'm never going down that path again because the consequence of doing something like that is wrong. So, you know, it's, it's an art. And in time to come, I, I hope uh, to do more parenting classes. I know that's been a request. And we are planning to have one coming up soon. But um, um, uh, Alan will talk to you about it later at the announcements. Because of the current situation, we may have to postpone. But we will see accordingly. But then, that applies to many of you who are still living under the household with your parents or those of us who are parents, what about those of us who our parents are much older? And my parents are not here because my mom's not well, so better not <laughs> come because that's the, the current guidelines we have. Uh, but, you know, what do we do? How do we as adult children obey this command? Here are some suggestions uh, I, I present you. First and foremost, I would say, forgive them. And I would say this even to my own children, forgive them. Because I know I have much to be forgiven of. You know, as parents, uh, we ourselves are human. More human than we'd like to admit. And being human means that we are fallen creatures and that we make mistakes all the time. I remember growing up and thinking to myself, ah, I'm never going to be like my dad. Because my dad always X, Y, Z. And next thing I know, as I evaluate, I find myself repeating all the things my dad said to me when I was a kid. And like, oh no, this is like a record, you know, that's going round and round again, uh, a scratch in the record, you know, it skips and it repeats, it repeats, it repeats. And that's the reality for many of us. But our parents, for better or for worse, did the best they could. And at times, yes, they did make mistakes. But I think it's very important that we forgive them. How? We forgive as Christ has forgiven us. You know, to be honest with you, I found it much, much easier to forgive my parents after I became a parent myself. And I realized how tough a job it is to be a parent. And, you know, the decisions are not there. You know, children don't come with an instruction manual. There is, uh, uh, no one tells you how to do it. And you, so you fumble your way through it. And every era is different. The things that we are faced with as parents of children today is far different. So as we relate to them, I think it begins, and I think this is true of all family relationships, that we need the grace of God so that we can forgive one another for being who we are. And that's the key to building good family relationships. But then the second thing is this, is to esteem them. I used to say to my parents and say to people, you know, without the two of them, I would not be here. And that's quite literally true on a biological sense. But it's true on every other level as well. 
You know, whether you like it or not, they have shaped you into the person that you are. You know, if you have uh, found me to be a good pastor, a good preacher, someone who is able to do a good job, I give credit to my parents. Because I learned how to do it at their feet, you know, in a sense. If I'm a poor pastor, a bad preacher, also blame... No. (laughs) All the mistakes are my own. But, you know, esteem them because they have contributed to who you are. Faults and all, you know, the sum of who you are, if you think you've done a good, uh, um, ended up in a fairly good place, parents are the ones that need that esteem. Because, you know what, as a parent myself, sometimes I don't know if I've done a good job. And it really uh, gives me encouragement when, when my, my child says to me, Dad, you've been a good dad. You know, it, it, it shows me at least they've appreciated the efforts. And, uh, you know, despite all the failings and the faults, there's something there. So esteem them. But thirdly, seek their advice. That goes without saying. You know, I saw the other day a t-shirt. I didn't get to be this old by being stupid. <laughs> And there's a truth to that, you know, because stupid people don't live very long. They make stupid choices and they end their lives. <laughs> and there is a wisdom that comes with age. And I, I think our Asian society uh, sees it and we value it. And I think there is a measure of truth to it. Now, wisdom doesn't mean that every time uh, you have to take everything that they say. But I do believe that you can't go very far from the principle of really looking to them and seeking that vice and, and weighing it up against everything else that's there. I uh, am reminded of a quote which I, I love from Mark Twain. I'm not sure where or when he said it, but you know, he was a, a, a journalist and it may have been one of his articles. He said this, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. <laughs> and I think we've all been there. In our youth, we may have looked at them and we say, ah, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But after a while, you know, you begin to understand and you begin to value the wisdom that comes from them and above and, you know, make use of it and, and, and appreciate it and value it. But third and lastly in the suggestions I would uh, place before you, Besides forgiving and esteeming and seeking their advice, I would say that we need to support them. And really, that's what uh, the gospel reading was about. Yes, because Jesus was being pressed on some of the traditions that the religious leaders had. You know, in some ways, what's wrong with that tradition of washing hands before you eat? We taught that now. (laughs) You know, it's actually a very good tradition. But when that tradition begins to violate the principles of God, And then he pulls out this uh, uh, practice which they had, in which, you know, uh, in another um, um, gospel, describes this as korban. That this money, which was supposed to go and support your parents, you take it and you give it to the Lord. And so, therefore, mom and dad, I can't support you. And on the one hand, it sounds really pious. But on the other hand, you know, we violated the principle that we are to honor our father and our mother that we are to support them by honouring them, that we are to uh, take care of them. And, you know, this is seen later on in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, 
and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That we are called to take care of our family. I'm mindful, you know, when we speak about families, families are the building block of society. And certainly in the church and in the people of God, families are very, very important. But because we live in a fallen world, not everyone finds himself in a good place. They may have broken families or have come from broken families. Not everyone finds himself a life partner and you've ended up single. But you know, this uh, um, um, teaching in First Timothy 5 comes in the context of Paul teaching Timothy in uh, uh, running a church. And the whole context, he speaks about taking care of widows in your midst. And if you understand, you know, the times in which they lived, you know, unfortunately, because it was a patriarchal society, your property passed down from the male to the male. And if, you know, there's no uh, male within your immediate family, passes on to the next uh, um, closest male relative. And so it would not be uncommon for a person, a lady who is widowed, to suddenly find herself destitute because maybe the relationship has broken down and it's gone to, you know, the next brother and the brother doesn't want to support you and you, you have found uh, uh, left destitute. Maybe because you become a Christian and they have put you out of the family because they are not Christians, the rest of the family, and they want nothing to do with you. And so Paul taught that this is now the family of God. That, you know, they say blood is thicker than water. Well, he teaches that the blood of the Lamb is thicker still. <laughs> that we are called to take care of the household of God as well. And so, you know, for those of us who struggle maybe with this concept of family because our families have not been what they're like. Maybe we are a single parent. Maybe we, we, we've struggled uh, uh, with singlehood. Or we have not had a good example of our family in our own lives. This is the household of God, and this is the family of God, and we're called to take care of each other. But all of this is well and good. How do we understand who Father God is? And we know this, you know, and you know this. Jesus came to earth to show us who the Father is. That's why when the disciples asked him to teach them to pray, he taught them this prayer. He said, Pray this prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it was revolutionary. Because although, you know, the, the people of God, the Israelites understood the concept of God as Father, but that intimacy, the ability to call Him Abba Father didn't really come until Jesus modeled it for the disciples. And they began to see this relationship of God as our Father. And He introduced us to Him. But as I've talked about fatherhood and parenthood, whether it's our relationship with them or them with us or how we have treated our parents or how we act as parents, you know, I think what's even more important is the word that Jesus spoke on that cross. That as he hung there and he looked at the 
crowd that had crucified him. He uttered these words, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And I think, you know, as I've been sharing each time we talk about each of the commandments, that the law is there and it's a guide to living and life and how it ought to be. But it's also a measure in which it shows us how far we have fallen short. And if I just spoke about the law just uh, um, as, as law, you could very easily leave the church and feel condemned. Either you feel condemned because you have fallen short or you feel, you know, elated and self-important because you feel you have kept this law, just like that rich uh, young man. (laughs) But if you are honest and you look at the very heart of it and you understand the full uh, implications of the law, I think none of us are justified by keeping the law. But that's not the final word because the law ultimately leads us to the gospel and to the promise that God sent His Son Jesus to live amongst us and ultimately to die for us, to take the price of our sins upon Himself on that cross, but also then to give us His righteousness and His divine exchange. And that's really what ultimately the resurrection is because the resurrection is a sign of God's answer to their prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His resurrection was really the vindication of all that Jesus had done, that the the guilty verdict that had been proclaimed over him was overturned at the resurrection. Now, forgive me, I'm using a scholar, uh, uh, Gihadus Voss, an Old Testament scholar who looked at this passage and and looked at the um, resurrection, and it's, you know, in scholarly terms, but I'll unpack it for you. He says this, Christ's resurrection was the de facto declaration of God in regard to His being just. That, you know, the resurrection proves that God is just. That ultimately, yes, condemnation was upon Christ, but He didn't leave Him condemned. That He raised Him to life because His quickening breath, uh, His quickening bears in itself the testimony of Jesus' justification. God, through suspending the forces of death operating on him, declared that the ultimate, the supreme consequence of sin had reached its termination, that Christ is the end of the law, that Jesus overcame death and overcame sin. That's why he rose again on that third day. In other words, resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. That's why we as Christians celebrate the resurrection. Why we as Christians, Paul tells us, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we are to be pitied above all men. (laughs) Why the resurrection is so important to us that last week I talked about how we have moved our Sabbath from a Saturday to the first day of the week to commemorate that resurrection. And that is the word of His grace. That is the word of His gospel. The law comes to kill. To kill us of our self-conceit of our overinflated sense of our own justification or our own projects to determine our own righteousness. But He doesn't leave us dead in our trespasses and sin. He raises us to new life in Jesus. That if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
The new has come. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. Because it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That Lord, it shows us where we have stepped off the path you have laid before us. But also shines the way back that ultimately comes through your Son, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for those of us who have entered into that relationship with your Son. That all this law is predicated on the fact that you have said, I am the Lord your God who has delivered you. And Lord, we have been delivered from darkness into your marvelous light. And we give thanks to you for that. Lord, I do pray for those in our midst who maybe have yet to make that declaration of faith, have yet to cross that line of faith. And I pray that in your own way, Lord, that you speak to them and that you lead them and guide them into all truth so that at the right time, Lord, they would respond to that call that you make to each and every one of us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you, Lord. We ask and we pray all this in your Son's most precious name. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's stand and declare our faith in the